Well, good morning, and uh, again, welcome. We're excited to be here and to uh, uh, be dishing out the Word of God, be uh, teaching the Word of God, and uh, uh, um, just... uh, you know, serving and loving and growing alongside of you. As I said uh, at the beginning of our worship service, um, this book, uh, what we're going through, the book of James, which will be in the second chapter here today, the book of James uh, goes hand in glove here with uh, what we just uh, uh, finished studying, and that was the book of Hebrews, uh, uh, the book of Hebrews. And I read to you at the beginning here, um, uh, at the beginning as we prayed, Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame. And when he was finished, it was finished at the cross, he rose again and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We read it there in Hebrews chapter 12. And so uh, uh, that secured for us new life. And that new life is what James is describing. You know, uh, a few years ago, there was some sort of charity that was going around. It was going around on Facebook where people would pour, I can't remember the charity, but would pour cold water on the heads of, of people, and they were doing it for charity and raising money, and uh, uh, you ever had cold water poured on your head? It just, boom, wakes you up, right? And as we move into uh, Resurrection Sunday through Good Friday and on to Resurrection Sunday coming up this week... James is like that. It's like pouring a bucket of cold water to wake us up, and uh, he certainly does that here in the second chapter uh, of, his, uh, of his letter. Well, who was James, remember? James is the brother of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's right. Jesus had brothers and sisters, and what we talked about last time is very important for the story here again today, and that's this is that James and his brothers didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah as he walked this earth, despite the fact that Jesus never sinned. They grew up with him. They lived with him. They didn't see any uh, tough or terrible or bad attitudes. And yet, they didn't believe in him as the Messiah. But it wasn't until Jesus died and rose again that they came to be believers. And in the life of James, we uh, know... And read that there was a post-resurrection appearance found in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, came and appeared to his brother. To his brother, this one, James. James. And it made all the difference in the world for his life. In fact, we said in the first chapter that James identifies himself not as the brother of Jesus Christ, but as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He willingly has bonded himself as a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ, who happened to be his brother. So what I'm trying to say here is that the resurrection makes all the difference in the world for this man, James. Who was he? Well, after the resurrection, we know that he became the leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and he had to handle tough and difficult decisions. You can look that up in Acts 15. And he handled it with firmness and with grace. Also, from extra-biblical evidence, we know that James was a great and intense man in prayer. In fact, some said that his knees were naughty and arthritic uh, because he spent so much time in prayer to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what about us living on this side of the cross? Well, Romans 8 tells us this about the resurrection. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's Romans 8.11, the power of a life raised by the Holy Spirit. That's what that's talking about. And then in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, we're talking about this new life, this new life. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Really easy to follow, right? And so here we're reading about a man named James who witnessed the resurrection, or at least the resurrection appearance, post-resurrection appearance of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who happened to be his brother. For those who come to Christ now, the Bible says, he who has the Son has life. It's really easy to follow. Even I can understand that one. And the power that gave us new life in Romans 8.11 is the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in us. Powerful, right? Well, James then gets to his letter. He's the leader in the early church, and he is giving us practical advice based on living a resurrected life. What does a resurrected life look like when you're faced with all kinds of problems? Here's some of the problems I jotted down as I read the book of James. He or they were combating several things in the church. The first ones, trials and tribulations, being rejected by family and friends. Is that a trial? Is that a tribulation? Well, they certainly were rejected by family and friends. We talked about that. He's writing this to the Hebrew Christians. And the Hebrew Christians weren't accepted by the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Remember, the world at the time was dominated by the Roman Empire, and so they weren't accepted by the non-Jewish people. But think about it, their own countrymen who still participated in uh, Judaism, in the Old Testament way of living, they'd come out of that and had um, lived according to a new covenant that Jesus established by his blood, the uh, covenant of grace. So they wouldn't be accepted by their own countrymen. You see it? They had this problem of troubles and tribulations, and we talked about that last week. There can be a myriad of troubles and tribulations that come to the Christian. How do we navigate trials and tribulation? And we talked about having that right perspective in the middle of the storm. You can go back and listen to that tape. But we also talked about temptations, temptations. When God, or excuse me, when the enemy pounces upon a desire that we have and tries to lead us into a path of sinning, the enemy does that. Of course, we have legitimate desires, don't we? There's uh, desires for sex, desires for food, desires for sleep, desires for rest. And God says those are all legitimate and okay desires, good desires. And when used in their proper arena, they're a gift from me. But now when we start to enjoy our desires more than we uh, want to please the Lord, The enemy can come in in his craftiness and deceive us into sin, which leads to death. We talked about that, and how do we navigate temptations? Well, the other thing that James sets forth in chapter 1 is that it's a resurrected life is one that is a doer of the word and not just a hearer, because if you're a doer of the word or excuse me, if you're a hearer of the word and a not a doer of the word, you're just deceiving yourself. The law of God is like a mirror, or the word of God is like a mirror. And when you put it up to your face and you go away and forget what you've seen, forget the lessons that the Lord's teaching you through the word, guess what, folks? We, us, can deceive ourselves when we don't move forward in obedience. And now we come to chapter 2. And here I'll read just the first verse, and we'll pray. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, we just come again uh, this morning. We come, Lord, with grateful and hungry hearts to hear from you, to receive resource from you so that we can go out and love a hurting and dying world. Lord, lead us to those who are lost and lonely or considered in the eyes of the world the least so that we can share your good news, the gospel, and that people would have new life and come back to you and serve you all their days and live with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, we're examining then the resurrected life. What does a resurrected life uh, look like? Of course, the James, James here, the brother, is a, a study in that as he comes and uh, didn't believe in our Lord and Savior during our Lord and Savior's earthly life, but then in a post-resurrection appearance, he receives life, and uh, the Holy Spirit comes to live in James's life, and the Lord uses him uh, to uh, navigate and lead the early church in Jerusalem. And he comes in and says there must have been in their meetings, in their worship times, Certain problems, we talked about it, trials, temptations, not being a doer, deceiving yourself. And the one uh, great problem that there must have been in the early church, and oh, by the way, it's still a problem today in the church, is that people within the church who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ were showing partiality in the church. What's partiality? Well, that word is a double word. It's like look at a face to see the face or to see the outward appearance of somebody and to make judgments about that person and then allow them into the church in the supreme places or uh, don't bring them into the church in the supreme places, have them be in the lower places of the church. It's, In other words, it's a way in which people look upon the outward appearance and judge. Now, we know from the Scriptures, don't we? That the Lord looks upon not the outward appearance, but the inward appearance, doesn't he? And here, uh, James says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, listen to this, for one who surrendered their life to Christ and received new life, resurrection power, their spirit filled, to be partial or biased, or discriminate in the church doesn't sit or, or, is, not, or is mutually exclusive with one who's spirit-filled. In other words, there's no room for partiality in the church. Let's look at this for a minute. Don't miss what uh, uh, the writer is saying here. He's calling our Lord, or he's calling the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Do you remember what John said in John chapter 1? John said this, And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. The Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and the Word dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, don't miss this either, full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus was. In other words, John, in his gospel, is telling us that the Word, the Word of God, the Logos, became flesh and then tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, and it was, we beheld the glory of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is God. My brethren, don't hold the faith, now I'm going back to James chapter 2, verse 1, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. The writer here is saying that Jesus is divine. And for those who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, they won't be biased in the church. They won't discriminate in the church. Think about what we think of when we think of our Lord and Savior as the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory came out of the heavens as a baby. He needed diapers. He slept. He was in a slobbery trough. You know this story from Christmas. The Lord of glory came out of the heavens. And Isaiah 53 tells us in a very famous prophecy that he would be despised and shamed and he would be rejected. You look at it. uh, Jesus was a man, Isaiah 53 tells us, with no form or beauty. He was nondescript. He was just a normal, everyday human, although he was the Lord of glory. You get it? He wasn't, the Bible tells us, a respecter of persons. We see that in Matthew twenty-two sixteen, when even the Pharisees, when they're trying to trick him in places, come to him and ask him certain questions to try and uh, uh, trip him up. And they say, though, uh, a couple times in the Gospels, but we know you're not a respecter of persons. You're not partial to anybody. Well, you could look at his life. 
and go through several of the stories that are contained in the Gospels, you know this. He was uh, uh, so overjoyed with this widow who gave into the temple treasury. She hardly had any money, but what she did give was very sacrificial. And Jesus said that was faith, and she, he marveled at it, and he uh, loved uh, what she was doing. A widow, remember? Uh, uh, widows uh, had a tough time uh, in that society because they had no one to help them and make money for them. But then you also see on the flip side of that, he sees this one guy one day as he's walking down the street. This guy's name, you've sang the song in Sunday school, Zacchaeus, a wee little man. Well, Zacchaeus, on the flip side of the widow, was a tax collector, a tax collector, someone who was very hated, right, by the Jewish people uh, because uh, they saw him as a traitor. So now Jesus has in, uh, encountered and helped a widow and uh, marveled at her faith, but he also encountered this guy named Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And do you remember what he said to him? Hey, Zacchaeus, come down for there. I'm coming over for lunch. He invited himself to lunch. He wasn't a respecter of persons. He went to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus requested this be at night. Remember who Nicodemus was. He was a up, um, upward, mobile, high society Pharisee. But then again, look on the flip side of that. At John 4, at the woman on the well, he meets with a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman. Uh, this woman had had five husbands and was uh, shacking up with another guy. That's my phrase, not the Bible's phrase. And, but, but he uh, ministered to her, and uh, the Bible tells us that he took a direct course from Jerusalem up to Galilee, which many went through Samaria. Most rabbis would bypass it, but he went there with the intention of ministering to this woman. He was no respecter of person. Remember, they healed a man when uh, their friends, uh, friends were very concerned about a man who was lame and they couldn't get in to see Jesus in a house, so they let him down through the roof. If you read that uh, account, it says that Jesus saw the friend's faith. He loved that and he loved people. And remember, he also called Matthew, a hated tax collector, and he called as, as a disciple. And he called James and John, who had anger issues, the sons of thunder. And he called a zealot to be one of his disciples, who undoubtedly would wanted, uh, under other circumstances, and maybe even still under the circumstances, would have wanted to kill a traitor like Matthew. And yet, Jesus called them. In other words, Jesus was not a respecter of persons. And when we read this, we say, my brethren, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, there's no room for us to ever discriminate based on any reason here at the church or within the church at large or the body of Christ. Oh, this person comes from that side of the track? Great, come on in. Oh, the person comes from the other side of the tracks? Oh, great, come on in. You're this color or that color? Oh, wonderful, praise the Lord. Come on in. What do you see um, when you uh, see people now? Well, what you see is one of two things. You see somebody who's not a Christian or who hasn't surrendered their life to Christ, and guess what they deserve? Dignity and respect. Why? Because they were made in the image and likeness of Christ. May we be people who see like Christ sees. In fact, the Bible tells us that we have available to us uh, with a relationship with Christ by the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ. And so, may we see people, either those who don't, uh, have not surrendered their life to Christ, oh, we see them with, or give them dignity and respect because they were made in the image and likeness of Christ. Or we see those who've surrendered their lives to Christ and who've already come into the family of God, even if they bug you or bother you, remember, Jesus Christ paid for their sins. And so we see there's no room for partiality uh, because of Jesus's uh, divinity, and now he comes to live in our lives, guess what? An authentic Christian, one who's spirit-filled, born again, guess what he does or she does? They treat people the way Jesus treated people, with no partiality.
Well, he goes on here and he uh, gives us uh, kind of an example, maybe even something that happened in the synagogues where they meet, met. And oh yes, I said synagogues on purpose because that's the word used here. So the early church maybe even uh, would meet sometimes in synagogues, sometimes in houses. But here it comes in verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Interesting, right? The outward appearance is not what God bases evaluation on. It's the inward appearance. He sees what's possible in us by his saving work and the, uh, uh, the life of the Holy Spirit within us. Get it? Here, he said, you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes. It's so easy for us to do, even today. Now, uh, you can get into that trap of uh, seeing somebody come through the door with the perfect suit and the perfect shoes and the perfectly uh, tie and the white starch shirt and uh, the perfect hair and the perfect jewelry. And you can just easily, because we've been trained this way through media and even the, it appeals to our flesh, to buddy up or friend that person. And of course, we should friend that person, but not at the expense of someone else. My good friend uh, from Calvary Chapel, Brownsville, taught me this lesson uh, one time on a a missions trip. I've told this story here uh, several times, but uh, I was blessed to, um, in early 2000s, head to Latvia for a missions trip on a a base, an old Russian uh, military base that had uh, been evacuated by the Russians, and the people of Latvia had come in. And uh, we uh, found a little Baptist church that was uh, doing missions or running the church right there on the old uh, naval station. And uh, we did this uh, uh, kind of like a uh, VBS-style evening kids club. And... uh, Uh, The first night, I think, or so, it went pretty well. But the second or third night, uh, we had this man that would uh, enter into the kind of the backyard of the camp where we were running this uh, kids' club. And, oh, wow, he he smelled really bad. And uh, he was uh, drunk. I mean, just really drunk. And he reeked of the alcohol and all that sort of thing. And I was just trying to get him away from the kids. Of course, we wanted to be safe. Of All of us wanted to be safe. And just kind of get him out of there and so that we couldn't be bothered by him. At least that's what I was praying. And uh, we, I, maybe we shooed him the first night. And the second night, the man came back. And uh, I was with this pastor, Pastor John Thomas of Calvary Chapel, Brownsville. And uh, again, I saw him coming, and I was just, uh, I just didn't really want to, uh, him to, to make it through uh, to the club or anything like that. Of course, we wanted to be safe. And instead of us going up and just talking to him, uh, Pastor John just came up to him and gave him a big old bear hug. And I mean a big bear hug, not, you know, side hug, just kind of cautious, a big all out, I love you and I care for you and I'd love to pay attention to you and I I want what's best for you, hug. And it disarmed the guy. And the guy kind of settled down, and Pastor John took him off to the side, and they talked, and they, uh, I'm sure uh, he shared the gospel. And, uh, but, but it taught me a big lesson. See people like Jesus sees people. This man, even though he was struggling and had some difficulty with hygiene, was Uh, deserving of uh, dignity and respect as he was made in the image and likeness of God. And instead of being a bother to me personally, maybe the Lord was sending him through those areas so that we could give him a big bear hug of love and share the gospel with him. Wow, it was a a great lesson for me. And uh, it shows just uh, what we're talking about here, not to show partiality, verse 4 of James chapter 2, among ourselves lest we would become judges with evil thoughts. Well, he goes on then in verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren, 
Has God not chosen, and circle that word, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not let the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? What's this talking about? Well, it's continuing on this path of no partiality. No partiality. There's no room for it for a resurrected life. And he gives us an example. And he warns us in this time, don't... uh, 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 discriminate against one group of people in the church at the expense of the other, especially because they may have a better socioeconomic standing. And here he says, God has chosen the poor of the world. That should make your spiritual uh, antennas just go foomp and flick right up by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's talking about grace. The choosing of God is grace. What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. Favor, not because there's anything uh, that's uh, particularly great or wonderful about the object of the favor uh, that God's placing his favor upon. No, there's no merit in the person he's giving grace to. He's giving grace because he is loving and graceful. And here it says, my beloved brethren, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich, the poor of this world? In, fir- in fact, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, it says he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why? Is, there, um, is God being discriminatory towards wealthy people? No, not at all. But what God uh, shows or what God is telling us here is not uh, something that's to the exclusion of rich people, but remember, riches can stumble. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. Not because they're rich, but because uh, the love of money is so um, enticing and can become idols in people's lives to where they don't even pay attention to what the Lord is saying or has done, sending his son Jesus But for the common people of which Jesus loved to be, the common people who are just everyday run-of-the-mill people, they recognize more readily, it seems, a need for a Savior. And here we see that God, through grace, has a heart for the poor of this world so that they will be, what? Rich in faith. What counts for God? What's pleasing unto God? It's faith. Without faith, the Bible tells us, it's, um, it's impossible to please God. Also, in Romans, it tells us that anything outside of faith, anything done outside of faith, is sin. So here, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen, verse 5, the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. What is the right response to God's grace? Not earn, not do more, not uh, uh, necessarily throw more money in the box or serve on more committees or do uh, more things for the pastor or anything like that. What's the proper response to grace? Love him. Just return it back in love, Romans 12 and 1. What's the proper response for those who uh, recognize the grace of God? They just want to love the Lord in return. And here it says it. Listen, my brethren, again, verse 5. God is, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? By the way, for those who've been blessed with wealth, it's not, you can, you're not precluded from the kingdom of God. Of course, just like all of us, uh, whatever God has placed in your hands, you just recognize that uh, he, you're a sinner. He's come down to bridge the gap between, Jesus has come down to bridge the gap between man and God. He's our great high priest. You surrender your life to the Lord. You count on his finished work at the cross and his resurrect from, uh, resurrection for your salvation, and you shall be saved. And now the wealth that God has blessed you with, he's put in your hand. You become a great steward to work for his plans and purposes. Here he says this. Look in verse 6. 
He promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. How, how could uh, uh, people in the church dishonor the poor man? Well, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme that noble name by which you're called, like Christ follower? Don't they do that and don't they make fun? Th- these same people who have all the rings on their hands and all the wealth and they're interested in coming into the uh, synagogue area or the church area, uh, synagogue I'm saying because that's the word you used here back in those times, just to come in so that you'll be impressed with them. They, they, they will do things like drag you into the courts and make your life very difficult. Why would you give partiality to them, he's asking. And of course, we've already seen Jesus is no respecter of persons. Let's us be people filled with the Spirit who love the ones that don't look like us, who reach out to the ones who aren't from the same uh, side of the tracks of us, and to live and love with no partiality. In fact, grace, as you study the New Testament, does what? It takes walls and brings them crashing down. There's no Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. There's no male or female in Christ Jesus. There's no rich or poor in Christ Jesus. There's no this color or that color in Christ Jesus. We are sons and daughters of the King now on equal footing at the cross here. And so we see... They blaspheme. Do they not blaspheme that noble name, verse 7, by which you're called? We go into a new section here that talks about this same theme. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall do this. What? Uh, He brings up a Scripture from Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. You do well. But if you show partiality, uh, underline this, you commit sin. Partiality is a sin. Being biased or discriminating against somebody is a sin. If somebody comes in here and you treat one better than the other, it's a sin. If you won't reach out to somebody and help them because they live there or don't live there, it's a sin. But if you want to really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told us that they'll know us by our love, didn't he? How about this? The Bible tells us in Romans 13, I think it's verse 10, that you fulfill the law by love, by loving. You fulfill the law by love. So if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, here's what you'll do. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus said that was the first and greatest commandment. You'll receive all your value and worth from the Lord. And then what you'll do is you'll turn around and love your neighbor as yourself. So why in the world would they call that the royal law? Because it came from God, our King. And Jesus manifested that and showed us that, our King here on the earth. And you're never acting more like Christ than when you're loving people and you're reaching out to neighbors, especially those who are oppressed and hurting. You remember the Good Samaritan story. They were asking this very question, who's, who's our neighbor? Okay, great. Just like human nature, right? Lord, you told me this great law was to love my neighbor, just like uh, typical humans. Okay, Lord, Who's my neighbor? And the story of the Good Samaritan tells us that when we, here it comes, anywhere we see a need, we meet a need. Whoever that is, that's our neighbor. See, a better question than who's my neighbor, sound like Fred Rogers, right? But a better question than who's my neighbor is who can I be a neighbor to? Where do I see a need? And then, Lord, direct me to that need and give me the resource and strength to try and help and meet that need. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. You do well, he says here. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, 
you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. It's a sin to show this partiality in this way. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all, of all the law. You say to yourself, well, you know, come on. Somebody walks through this door in a good suit and somebody walks through that door and they smell and they don't have great clothes on. And I kind of just go over to the one and I know what I'm doing. You're telling me that's a sin? What about like murder and adultery? Those are sins. And hear what the Bible is saying. If you've uh, uh, failed in one point of the law, you've failed in all. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. What were uh, two uh, ramifications of those uh, commandments being broken? You'd be stoned to death. They were capital punishment offenses in, under the law. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. What does this mean? Well, it means this, that showing partiality is a sin, like murder is a sin. Like adultery is a sin. And what judges you is this law of liberty, this gospel of grace, this uh, uh, royal law that is a higher standard than even the Old Testament law. Why? Because the Old Testament law, when you violated it, you struck against the law. Here, now under the doctrine of grace and mercy, when you violate that doctrine, you're striking against the heart of God. So, this is the law of liberty, liberty the, 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 the place where the Lord asks us to be obedient in certain areas, and in one of the places He asks us to be obedient and gives us resource and strength is the area of partiality. And if we're not, we're being judged by the gospel of grace, this gospel of liberty. By the way, most people don't think the gospel... Uh, uh, or is, is uh, the gospel of liberty. I remember when I, somebody was sharing the gospel with me, uh, I always thought to myself, well, come on, Christianity, bunch of rules and regulations and old dusty Bibles and happy, having to help old ladies across the street at 4.30 in the morning and da-da-da-da-da and, and, and old men, uh, you know, through the whatever they needed to get through. And it just didn't seem very exciting to me. See, the law of liberty is this. That God has removed every impediment for us to get back to him so that we can live as we've always been intended to live. Fully ablaze for him. Being used for our purpose in life, which is to glorify God. And those who reject the law of liberty say, I don't want rules and regulations. And they go out and they do what they want. That's called licentiousness. That's a place of bondage and sin. And they cannot free themselves. And here the law of liberty is living as God intended. We sang a, law of, or a song today about being free. That's living as God intended us to live based on what Christ has done. That's the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, you'd have to have traveled with us through the book of Matthew and then the uh, Beatitudes, you know, uh, Jesus talked about this. He gives, he's merciful, or for the ones who show mercy, they receive mercy. But remember, the Beatitudes are less what we do, and they're more who we are in Christ. In other words, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy, but to the child of God who's uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, we will show mercy. Get it? Of course, there are uh, those uh, passages that do say, for what judgment you judge, Matthew 7, you will be judged, and with what measure you used, it will be measured back to you. In other words, when I'm dealing with other people, when we're dealing with other people as brothers and sisters in Christ, let's deal with them according to the gospel of grace and mercy, not law and condemnation. 
right? For those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will deal with people in that way. And so partiality is a big thing in the early church. Oh, by the way, it's a big thing here. A resurrected life doesn't um, operate by discriminating against other people. Well, let's go on in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren? Notice that. It's of no profit. That's a way of saying it's no profit, my brothers. If someone says he has faith uh, but does not have works. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Can faith save him or can this sort of faith save him? That's a better way of saying it. Look in verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Oh no, we've come to a troublesome spot, haven't we? No, not really. Is there a contradiction here about the things that Paul wrote? Is there a a tension here between the things Paul wrote and the things James is writing right here? We know in Romans 3.28, for instance, Paul wrote this, a man is not justified by works of the law. How more plain could it be than that? Or how about this in Galatians 2.16, because works by the works of the law shall no one be justified. No one can be declared not guilty by the works of the law. And yet, look at this. James says here that faith without works is dead. So what's going on here? Well, listen, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, even Paul himself, we see that there is an evaluation of the works that we do. In Ephesians 2.10, After the most famous grace by faith verses of the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You can look that up. In Ephesians 2, 10, it says that the Lord has uh, 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 given us works or good works to walk in. To walk in. We're his poem, Ephesians 2, 10 says, and he's given us good works to walk in. Well, look at this. John the Baptist You know John the Baptist. He comes out early in the New Testament, in Matthew 3 and Luke 3. He says this when he's doing his baptizing at the Jordan River. After he's done uh, doing uh, the baptizing of the people, he says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. That's the New Testament. What about this? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. There's the purpose of your life. How about this one? Matthew 7, 15 through 21. You can read it. I won't read the whole thing, but by the fruits, you'll know them. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. Paul himself, having written Romans 3, 28, a man is not justified by works of the law, writes this in the same book. God will render to every man according to his works. What about this? Romans 14. Everyone will give an account of himself to God. How about this in 1 Corinthians 3? Paul again. Verse 8. Every man will receive his own reward according to his labor. We have the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. Colossians 3.9 tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new. So what's going on here? Oh, I forgot to. In Titus, which is the book uh, we've just completed recently, how about this? Paul says this, uh, there are people who profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. And then later on in that same uh, letter, he says, be careful to maintain good works. So again, I ask you, what's going on here? What is it? Is it a man is justified, uh, uh, is not justified by works of the law, or should there be good works? Well, here is uh, what I can say. No man is saved, or woman, no man or woman is saved or can be saved by good works. But no man can be saved without producing works. Catch it. You're not saved by works, but you're saved unto good works. 
As one writer put it, listen to this, you're not saved by deeds, by the way, that's what Paul wrote, but you are saved for deeds. And by the way, that's what James wrote about. You see, Paul and James are writing from two different perspectives. Paul is writing more from this uh, initial entrance into the family of God. You're saved by grace through faith. And so you're not justified by the works of the law. Oh, no, you're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and declared not guilty. James is writing from a little bit different perspective. He's writing to professing Christians... You get it? He's uh, uh, writing to a, in a different point of time to professing Christians who aren't showing any fruit in their life. And so he writes what we just read. It doesn't profit anything. That's how you could read verse 14, brothers and sisters. If someone, circle it, says he has faith but doesn't have works. In other words, we can talk all we want. But if we don't possess what the Bible has for us, which is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are just talking, and it's hot air, just with full of vanity. He says he has faith, but he doesn't have works. Why? Works are like an apple tree or an orange tree. What do you know about where the, um, the tree is getting its nutrients? Where is it? It's below the surface. It's through the nutrients and the roots in it. But, but then every year, what happens to an orange tree or an apple tree? I'm not even sure of the seasons. You see fruit. And one thing that you know when the fruit comes out, you know for sure that tree's alive. That tree's alive. It's producing fruit. And that's what James is saying here. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he had faith but doesn't have works? Can that kind of faith save him? The answer is no. That kind of faith can't save him. And i got to tell you, there, if you're watching online, there are millions of people in the Christian church who have faith like that. They say they have faith, but they have no works. There's nothing to show that they're alive. That kind of faith can't save them. In fact, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, he sees a need. She sees a need. If that kind of professing Christian sees a need, what they usually do is they just walk on by and let others do it. Did you catch that? Is that sobering? Is that like throwing the cold water over top of your head spiritually? But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. So what does it profit? In other words, it profits nothing. Thus also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. There must be a transformation. We all transform or are sanctified. Uh, in one sense, we're sanctified and set apart. But in another sense, as we become more and more Christ-like, we grow at different rates. We mature in different ways. But the trajectory of our lives should be that we're alive and have fruit. What about this in verse 18? But someone's going to say, well, you have faith and I have works. In other words, oh, you talk all about that doctrine, but you never do anything. Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out into the world and work, 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 and I don't really care about the doctrine. That's what they're saying here. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, the writer says. In other words... Uh, what we're about ready to read uh, there later, that we're justified by our works, of course we're not justified and declared not guilty before God for our sins by works. We're justified by the blood. But before man, listen to this, but before man out there in life as they're looking and peering into our lives, we're vindicated or justified by our works. They can see, like the apple tree or the orange tree, there's life there. Does that make sense? And so, check this out. Someone will say, you have, verse 18, I, uh, faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And here it comes, the central part of the message. You believe that there is one God. You understand that the 
Israelites used to say this in Deuteronomy 6 every morning and every night. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. What do we believe? We believe in one God in three persons. We believe this. Well, you do well if you believe that there's one God. That's good. You intellectually know that there's a God. Fantastic. You're on the right path, in other words. But that's not all. Even the demons believe that. And tremble. I've got two calls this week. (laughs) It's amazing how the Lord works. Two calls this week. Both calls were this. How do I know that I'm saved? I can't make this up. How do I know that I'm saved? What, What kind of faith, they asked, does it take to be saved? What kind of faith? And right here, I directed them to James 2. James 2 tells you the kind of faith we must have in order to be saved. There's millions of people going to church week after week, day after day, or excuse me, weekend after weekend, Wednesday night after Wednesday night, and they have the kind of faith that's not saving faith. And I don't want you to miss it. Here he says, uh, you believe that there is one God. Intellectually, you believe. You believe. Well, that's good. You're on the right path, he says. You do well. But even the demons believe. The enemies of our soul, Satan and his minions, they believe that there is a God or that there's God, God the Father. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. You can read it in the scriptures. They believe that Jesus is charged with judgment. They believe that there's a place of damnation. They believe that intellectually they believe it and yet they're certainly not going to live in communion with the Lord forever why not because they believe intellectually and I want you to see something else they trembled which means they're even emotionally stirred by the gospel catch it they know intellectually and they're even emotionally stirred and that's not enough That's not the quality of faith that the Lord is saying must accompany saving faith. What else must you do? Even the demons believe in trembling. What else must there be? There must be a submission of your will and your whole life unto the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like James did. Not just believe. I heard someone say this. When we walked into the sanctuary here tonight, we, we uh, uh, looked and saw these pretty brown chairs. Intellectually, we knew that they were chairs. And we knew that they were built with good solid frame and great cushion to support us and help us sit here and listen or worship or pray or whatever we're doing. We know that intellectually. And you know what? After a tired day, we look at the padding and we go, yes! Those seats are fantastic emotion. But we never really trust the seat until we sit in it. We take our will and we say, I'm sitting down in trust that it's going to hold me up and protect me and keep me comfortable. We don't do it until we sit. And that's what the uh, book of James or the writer here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying to us, you can know intellectually and maybe even emotionally and never have saving faith. And I don't want you to miss it. Oh, that we would give our whole being, everything we are, in response to the deity and grace of our Lord and Savior. By his word, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And then live a life of faith, of trust and dependence. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Everything outside of faith is a sin. Living in faith, in trust and dependence. And the faith that we've seen from Hebrews and elsewhere is a faith in a God who's able. The God of uh, Jacob and Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God, the God who sent his son Jesus Christ, he's the object of our faith. We don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in God because the um, Bible tells a true story, does it not, when it says, when we're faithless, he remains faithful. He is where we trust and hear. For those who do that, it says, 
Do you want to know, O foolish man, that with faith without works is dead? In other words, when you have submitted your intellect, your emotion, your will, your everything to the uh, the perfect work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his resurrection, and you've submitted to that, and you're going to live your life in service to that and ask the Lord to come into your life and be uh, uh, the Lord of your life. Listen, your faith will come alive and will work and not be dead. You're going to receive life and then perform works. By the way, Jesus was asked in John 6, what are those works that I need to do? Someone asked Jesus in John 6, and you know what Jesus said? Believe on God and me. Believe and trust in every circumstance, in every place. Believe. But first of all, you start out and you come into the Christian life once by the blood of his son. We count on that. We devote all of our life to that. Well, getting back to this, we see it here. How do I know this? Well, I know it because the Bible gives us two examples. Look in verse uh, 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? (laughs) It's funny. Isn't the Bible amazing? He's saying, I know you seem to think there may be a contradiction, but there isn't a contradiction. And here I'm going to tell you why I know that, the writer says it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, and the scripture, or excuse me, uh, uh, was not Abraham, verse 21, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now catch this. I don't know much, but I know this. Genesis 20 is after Genesis 15. Genesis 20 is after Genesis 15. And guess how many years separate those chapters? Around 40. So what happened in Genesis 15? Look down in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Righteousness was imputed into his spiritual bank account, and he had faith and trust as much as he could know about God and his plan of salvation. Abraham, in Genesis 15, 40 years before he was called to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah, 40 years he came into the family of God, or he had, uh, had this relationship with God through faith. You catch it? And then 40 years later, God called him to sacrifice his son on this altar in Genesis 20. And it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Yes, he was vindicated from man or among men in showing that there was fruit in his life. Even when God asked him to do something difficult and hard, he went and did it. And you know the story. As he moves on to Mount Moriah, there's two servants with Abraham. And he says, in essence, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, we'll be back. Because he knew somehow, some way, God had told him that whether his son actually died and came back to life, there was going to be life in Isaac as they came back down off that mountain. He believed and trusted God, but it was 40 years later. You understand? He came into the family of God by faith, and the thing that he did demonstrated or gave fruit to the world that his faith was alive. That's the point. And then he picks another one here. The writer here picks another one. Two stark contrasts. You couldn't have picked any more uh, a different con- or a, a bigger contrast than this. Abraham, the father of the Jews, and Rahab, a prostitute. What did Rahab do? Well, her story is told in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. Abraham believed God, it says here, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Why? Because if you have dead faith, you've never received life. If you have uh, fruit that's flowing out of your life, you know that you've received the life. Get it? And here he goes on and says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Same thing happens. Listen to this. The Israelites are getting to go uh, up into the land of promise. Israelites are. And they come to Jericho. God sends in two spies. You remember this story? 
And they encounter this one named Rahab, who, whether she ran an inn or a place to stay, uh, and then also uh, was a, a prostitute or a harlot, she then encounters them and uh, agrees to hide them from her own country people. Get it? And in that passage in Joshua 2, it says, listen to this, that her whole city, all of them, had heard about the deeds of God. They'd all heard about the deeds of God and the, the victories that God was winning on behalf of the Israelites. And it says, this is what it says, their hearts melted. And what she did was she put her trust and faith in God uh, of the Israelites right then. We know it because she was in, or she is in, Hebrews 11, in the, included in the Hall of Faith. She put her trust in them. And then guess what? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Guess what? In, remember Joshua 2 this happened? In Joshua 6, the men actually come, the Israelites actually come. So later in time, the Israelites actually come. She hides the spies and they get away. And how do they remember not to uh, over, uh, overcome the armies of Israel, not to overcome her household? She puts a little scarlet uh, thread in her window. The red blood covered her. And she came into faith. And the point here is this. Both Abraham and a prostitute. Oh, by the way, the prostitute is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. What grace. What mercy. But anyway, uh, Abraham and Rahab, they put their faith in Christ. And then these things of faith that they did were a natural outgrowth or the fruit of the life that was already in them. And so when here James is writing that faith without works is dead, of course it is. We're not saved by our good works, as I said earlier, but we're saved unto good works, and they'll recognize us by our fruit. And so the question becomes for each of us, and it's a really important question. In fact, Paul tells us in another letter and Peter tells us, Paul and Peter both, they tell us, Paul says, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Peter says, make your election and calling sure, or your calling and election sure. And the question becomes, have we submitted our whole life to Christ? People say, well, how do I know that I'm saved? Here's how you know. Read through the book of James. And is your life on a trajectory of that sort of fruit? Are you hanging in there in times of trouble? Are you resisting temptation according to the Holy Spirit by the Word of God? Are you one who's a doer of the Word? Do you see a need and meet a need? Is the uh, uh, whole trajectory of your life, Jesus and what He's paid and done and rose again, is that you? And when you uh, are called to do hard and difficult things, do you argue with the Lord? Do you say no, like forgive somebody? Or do you go and do what you've been asked to do? in the freedom of the Lord. Let me not forget to finish with verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead. By the way, that's a great definition of what death is. But for, the, for as the body without the spirit is dead, the separation of spirit and body, look at this. So faith without works is dead also. In other words, the works are the fruit and the proof that we're alive in Christ, that we're alive in Christ. So I just say to you here, as we have the worshipers come up, I would say to you, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and are counting on his finished work at the cross for your salvation and his resurrection for your new life, you can do that today. And if you're one who is wondering whether or not uh, you're in the faith or not, Look, match it up with James here. Match it up uh, with James and what it says. Are you a person who loves other people? Are you a person who shows no partiality? Are you a person who does the word and doesn't, doesn't hear it or forget it? Are you one who uh, sees a need and meets a need? And are you a one who's uh, motivated by the love or compelled by the love of Christ to uh, clothe others and feed others and stick up for the poor? 
See, before I came to Christ, none of those things mattered to me. And yet, here now, uh, the Lord has done something miraculous in my life, and it's why I'm so passionate uh, to tell all of you. So as we close, and I pray, if you want to surrender your life to Christ, I want you to contact us, email us, call us. You could do it right now in your house or wherever you are, at your computer. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And so as we bow our heads, and if you're tired of just going through life with no answers and no direction, you might even be shiny on the outside, great clothes, great car, great job, or maybe you're not. Maybe you're a common person just like I am. Well, we all need Jesus. And here, let's do this. Let's pray. And I'll pray that you would give your heart to the Lord. Just pray along with me. So, Lord, we just come to you and uh, we just uh, pray, Lord, that anybody out there or anybody here, Lord, that would come, want to come to know you in a real and saving way would just now give their life over, that they would recognize that they're a sinner. Lord, I'm a sinner, that we would say. Lord, I'm a sinner and I repent. I agree with you, Lord. And I move back to you, Lord, by the blood of your Son. I thank you for that. And I praise you, Lord, that I can come into your uh, uh, throne room now by, the gra- by grace and mercy to find grace and mercy. Lord, we love you, but we know it's because you first loved us. We thank you, Lord, uh, for today and always. In Jesus' name, amen.